Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. I guess today on the A-Game podcast is my buddy and sometimes training partner, Jason Rao. Jason Rao is the next big thing in jiu-jitsu. He is a Sarah Black Belt. He's part of the Data Her Desk Squad, trains at Henzo Gracie Academy in New York City as well. He is uh, an instructor over at Sarah BJJ, and he is a uh, top-level world elite grappling competitor. He's uh, got some DVDs and stuff out that we're going to talk about, uh, but he really is uh, somebody that I've seen come up over the years from the day he walked into the gym and really just put the time and the work in to become an elite grappler or elite competitor and really hone his tools and put the work in and put the time in to become what he is today and watching somebody come in and put the extra hours in and do the extra reps and literally just do all the other things and put the extra time and effort in that other people don't do and see him get that result to where he is today I think sums up every conversation I try and have on this podcast. So whatever it is, again, whether it's real estate, whether it's jujitsu, whether it's acting, being a comedian, being a pilot, being an astronaut, being a musician, you know, if you really want to excel and become that 1%, you're willing to do a lot of the things extra that most people are not willing to do. And, uh, you know, Jason's been doing that for years and the guys that train with him at the gym and I've seen him putting the time in are not surprised that he is where he is and everybody's happy for him because he absolutely earned everything that he has and all the skills that he has. And uh, that's what I love about the community, but he's always been a super nice guy to me. Um, he's again, like most of the guys that sell jujitsu, most of the jujitsu guys that I know are all, they're just the nicest killers ever. You know, they could uh, cripple you within a matter of seconds, but they, they don't thankfully. So um, if you guys are looking to take privates, he obviously does privates at uh, Sarah Jiu-Jitsu. He is absolutely phenomenal. I believe he's doing zoom privates as well. Um, but check out the episode, even, even if you're not a big jujitsu guy, this is a great podcast to listen to because the fundamentals of hard work and dedication and learning your craft and just putting the time in and having the patience and surrounding yourself with people that are going to help you excel and take you to the next level and the benefits of instructing and working with higher level people when you train and then training lower level people. So you're always fo focusing on the basics and getting asked the questions and having to learn how to explain things and break things down in a different way, which not only helps them, but helps you as an instructor and helps you as a competitor and helps you understand your craft better. I think applies across the board to whatever you do as an entrepreneur, as an athlete, as a musician, and as a person. So uh, Jason Rao, I had a great time talking to him. Can't wait to get to back to New York and train with him and Jay Gershon and Joe Riley and Peace Corps Mike and all the guys over at Sarah Jiu-Jitsu that are studs that are all uh, very proud of Jason Rao and everything that he's done. Um, last, I know his main instructor, Matt Sarah, is. This episode is also brought to you in part by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. So especially if you're a jiu-jitsu guy, you got nagging aids and pains, go to nicknicknick.com slash links and click on Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. It is a Navy SEAL-owned CBD company by William Brandon Hailing out of Hawaii. Go on the site, you can see all different types of CBD, whether it's drops, whether it's um, 
uh, topicals, whether it's gummies, whatever it is, there's all kinds of different things. The inventory on there is growing every single day. If you have nagging injuries, aches, pains, and inflammation, anxiety, stress, sleep problems, digestive issues, all kinds of things, CBD is an absolute miracle drug. You have to take it for 30, 60 days consistently. Not that gay station crap. You got to have that pure CBD that they sell at Naked Warrior Recovery. So go check it out, and you're going to start to see that you feel way better uh, six to eight weeks from now if you take it consistently. If you put in promo code AGAME when you go to check out, you will get 20% off of anything you buy on that site every time you buy on that site. Also, if you're looking to get into real estate investing, you want to start to have your money make money for you. You want to start to build up some assets, build up some cash flow. You don't want to be relying on whatever's going on with COVID that might have affected your income and you've been dying to get into real estate. You just don't know how. Go to nicknicknick.com. Definitely start out with getting our free ebook. You have to pay for it on Amazon. If you go through our website, it's free. Nicknicknick.com. Click on the ebook. It will go over a very nice, easy, quick read on uh, how the market has adjusted since the coronavirus and whatever investor needs to know right now. And you, you can also contact us through uh, nicknicknick.com slash links or through that website on any of the social media channels, or you will see ways to email me or contact me to connect, whether you're starting out and you want to know how to get in, whether I buy properties from you, you sell properties to me, or we figure out how to partner together, or you're a, a middle, middle tier investor that's got some experience, or you're a high level investor just looking to branch out or, or look at some new opportunities, whether it's residential, commercial, fix and flips, or rentals, don't let 2021 start out the same way the 2020 did for you, wishing that you'd started sooner. So jump in. Let's figure out how to make you some money. Let's get you doing some jujitsu with Jason Rao. I'm going to do a giveaway for this episode too. So check my Instagram at Nick Lamagna Invest, and I'll be doing a giveaway. I'm going to give away a couple of Jason Rao's DVDs. I'll support him and give that to somebody else as well. Uh, so if you want to learn from the best, jump on there, follow us. Thank you very much. I will see everybody soon. Hope you have a great day. All right, my guest today on the A-Game podcast is the Jiu-Jitsu phenom, Jason Rao. Welcome, Jason Rao. Sarah Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt, part of the, uh, I guess, part of the Dan and Her Death Squad, a team Hezo Gracie too now, right? Yeah, I would say uh, I'm not really there so much anymore, but uh, yeah, like I've definitely trained a lot with them. Thanks for having me, Nick. Pleasure to be on. Good to Thanks see you. for coming on. I, uh, you know, for people, your name comes up more and more. It's kind of crazy because... Uh, you know, I remember when you, I started training before you, which I think is awesome because it's always a good, it's always a good testament to how like putting in the time and putting in the work shows in, in what you do. So like, it really doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It's about consistency and all that stuff. And I feel like yeah, you're a definitely. really good example of somebody who just spent a lot of time on the mat, which I definitely want to talk to, like all the stuff you did for drilling and how good you've gotten. But it's cool to see how like throughout the academy over the years, people were like, Dude, if you roll with Jason Rao lately, and I'm like, no, and they'd be like, holy shit, man, he's getting better and better. And now, like every jujitsu podcast I listen to, every interview with the biggest names from Eddie Bravo to Gordon Ryan, when they're asking about like who to look out for and who's like the top dog out there, your name just pops up like crazy. It's always like, hey, man, look out for this dude, Jason Rao. Look out for Nick Ronan. So it's really cool for me to see that. I'm very, very proud of you for what you're oh, becoming. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> So uh, I want to ask you some questions as we dive through here. The first one, obviously, how'd you get started in the jiu-jitsu? I, I think you you definitely, I, was it tennis you had a background in? I know you were. No, no, no. So this is funny. You, you're thinking of Greg Lumpkin. Remember Lumpkin? Like, <laughs> so, so my friend Greg Lumpkin, who I went to Lumpkin, who I went to high school with, he, uh, he uh, was going to school in Hofstra. And they had a jiu-jitsu club there remember, run by, you probably remember this guy too. Remember by Seth? Like yes. skinny Seth? Yeah. Young Seth. Yeah, yeah, young Seth. Yeah, he ran the jiu-jitsu club there, and 
and Greg started going and he got kind of like, I didn't go to Hofstra, but he kind of got me to come down. And it was like, I had wrestled in high school and it was like kind of similar. I was like, man, this is cool. And I literally just like went down to Sarah's the next week and signed up and, and started training there. I think it was uh, like beginning of 2010. So it's been oh, you know, wow. almost 11 years now. Um, but uh, like I, I loved it from the very beginning. Uh, like back then it wasn't like, uh, I mean, I think in general, you couldn't really make a c- career out of it per se in straight jujitsu, but, but over the years, it's kind of, you know, as I got more popular, uh, it kind of, kind of developed into that. And really the past like four or five years, it's become like a pretty stable career for me, which I'm, I'm very happy about to be able to do something I love so much on a daily basis and make a living out of it. Is, you know, nothing better than that. That's awesome. What, what made you, uh, I guess, obviously Lumpkin had picked Sarah's first. Was there any, were you, were you trying to figure out where to go? Or was it always just like, Hey, I'm just uh, well, going to Sarah's. Yeah, Cause I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what jujitsu was. So I went to this club at Hofstra, which was run by Seth. It was a Sarah blue belt. So he had trained there. And so that was kind of just a natural progression. I was like, man, this is so cool. Like they had the club like once a week. So I went for two weeks and he's, they're like, Oh, you got to come join Sarah's because that's where they train. And it was right down the block on Hempstead Turnpike. So you know, I, I like figured like I knew Matt Sarah was in the UFC. You know, I figured that was the place to go, which it was. And, uh, you know, went there, signed up the next week and, you know, and never stopped training since. Nice, man. I, I actually remember when you and uh, Lumpkin started coming down together and everybody used to kind of confuse you guys. Yeah, yeah. it's funny because you good. say ten, I have a background in tennis because that's what he has a background in. Like, yeah. that's what he does. He teaches tennis. And he, I mean, he hasn't been training, you know. But like when we first started together, we were always, you know, together because we went to high school together. We're friends. We would always come together and we kind of looked alike. So people would call <laughs> us brothers a lot. Uh, it's fine. He, he was good too, though. Both of you guys, I remember thinking like, these guys are picking stuff up quick. Like they're going to be a problem. Obviously, I didn't realize you were going to sell as far as you did, but like you all, you definitely were natural with the stuff you were doing for the level you were at. You definitely were better, like right off the bat when you were coming through. And I know, um, I saw young Seth at uh, Bo's wedding a couple of years back. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know Bo got married. It was in Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's over in Chicago. Joe, Joe Riley was my date. We couldn't bring anybody. so. We oh, just- really? That's funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a good time. He's a good guy. So, you know, one of the things that I see, like, again, Bo is a great example of it because I remember he specifically, he hit me up and I think you guys were like running the desk together for a little while. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and we would see you kind of on the medicine ball and doing like leg drags and just repping, repping, repping. And then I remember uh, he called up me and strip club Dave one day, Dave Ferrante. And he was like, man, yes. he's like, dude, he's like, I've been rolling with Jason like every day. He is tapping the shit out of me. And we were like, and I think Bo was like almost a black belt at this time. And I think you might've still been like a blue belt. And we were like, what? We're like, really Jason? And we we're like, I don't know. Maybe Bo's just not that good. <laughs> and then like <laughs> the next thing, like then everybody was like, dude, Jason, 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 Jason. And I remember there was that transition where like anytime I would come into the gym, cause I always like would train like weird hours and, you know, yeah, yeah. Off hours, but you were always there and you'd always have like at least another person or a couple of people. And you would just be rapping, 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 even doing like solo drills. And then from that, all of a sudden it started really translating into your rolling and you just started kind of just destroying people out of nowhere. What happened? Like, what was the big thing that, that, cause there was a major shift that all of a sudden you were just one of the elite guys in there. So it's funny. I, uh, I remember I, I was a blue belt at the time. I'd probably been training about a year. Um, and I got this book. It's called Andre Galvao's Drill the Win. I mean, like, at this point, like, you know, there's so many instructionals out, like, no one would buy a jiu-jitsu book. But the, back then, there was not really any DVDs or 
what there were, there weren't, you know, it wasn't as easily accessible as it is now. And it was like, it was like 365 days to better BJJ. It was like a drill each day. And I just, I don't even remember where I heard about it from. Maybe I saw it online or like SureDog. Remember SureDog forums, yeah, how popular yeah. they were. Yeah. And I like picked it up. I went to like Barnes and Nobles and they had it there. And I just started doing all the drills. And it was like the first, you know, like the first month was like all solo drills. And then it got into different positions and it was nothing like crazy complicated. It was like certain drills to increase your you know, body awareness and your movement and your skills. And I just started doing them every day. Like and one of the first things in there was using the medicine ball. So he would like balance on the medicine ball on his knees and do hip switches on it. And he progressed to like standing on it and all these things, which like, I think it's good. And like looking back, is it like the most applicable thing? Like probably not, but like I liked it. And I felt like at the time it really helped me, you know, especially for someone that's a little bit newer to the sport. You don't have like that sensitivity or like putting your weight on someone. So I started doing that. And then I just started doing all the drills and that kind of really got me into like studying technique before that. I kind of just learned what I learned in the Academy. And I think, I think in general people like, not that it's a bad thing, but they fall into this like pattern of like, you do the move from the class and like, not that the moves are not good. Like, like pretty much everything you're being taught is pretty viable, but you do the moves from the class and then, you know, like then you roll and you kind of just do whatever, but instead of like focusing specifically on something you want to get better at. So for me, I remember like the first thing I got, I got pretty good at was, was uh, like the smash pass, the Matt Sarah, like smash pass was, which, you know, he was like so good at it. I remember like watching all his matches and trying to emulate that and like put that into my own game and asking him questions on it and just like, just drilling it that and different setups for it and like that became like a big habit of mine coming early before class you know spending an hour drilling certain movements over and over and over and over again and i i think if you go from just like or just drilling the moves in class and then just like rolling but if you add that in like specific drilling for something you want to get better at i think you're going to see immediate improvement right away yeah that drillers are killers i mean literally every time i hear that i immediately think about you (laughs) <laughs> shows. But e- even the guys that were part of that group, like Javier, Gary Starr, Zach Fala, Ray Panza, like the guys that I would see in there, when I would train with them, I would watch their games go up too. So you, you can't argue with the fact that that was helping because oh, all those guys became very technical and, and very tough matches also. But the, the, the problem I think a lot of people have, which I have a little bit of it, you know, I, I don't, well, let me backtrack for a second. First off, Matt Sarah, I definitely always, I try and bring him and Ray Longo up basically like every, every episode, but yeah, you know, yeah. having somebody like that at the gym accessible to you at all times is, is just awesome. And, I, and whenever I go to these places and I travel around, you know, I, I'm hearing your name, but people always are like, man, Matt Sarah, what's that like? And, you know, as tough and as good as guys are, I still don't think that people that haven't trained with him realize how good he is. I mean, just the, Definitely. with no effort, you know what I mean? Like just crushing you, taking out lines of black belts and like, all right, guys, that was fun. See you tomorrow. I'm going to go eat some pasta. And I'm like, yeah. why are you even trying? Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I remember Gary Starr was like, dude, he's like, like a good black belt makes you want to tap. He's like, but rolling with Matt, it, it makes you want to quit and just go home. And I was like, man, yeah. I can feel that feeling. It sucks. So um, how has that been having a guy like that around to show you the ropes and just pick his Oh, that's brain? awesome. It's, fu- it's funny. Like when I first started, um, and Matt was still fighting, so he wasn't he wasn't teaching as much. You know, that I was like learning from Bo and Billy Ho, and those were like the kind of guys running East Meadow. 
But as I, I started, like I started working the desk there and he started to come around more and more. And it, it was just, he was someone that like speaking specifically of that smash pass, but he was someone that like was easily accessible. And then I really wanted to emulate my game after. Like, I remember like he had like an old DVD of, uh, it wasn't really a DVD. It was an old, it was old footage of him competing at Purple Belt Worlds. And it was like all his matches, like he won, you know, the football worlds. And I remember him giving it to me and like me like watching it over and over and over again. It was just cool that like a guy I wanted to model my game after was, you know, my, my, you know, instructor, my sensei at the same time. Like, I thought that was really cool. And I definitely, uh, even today, like my game, obviously this is when I was, you know, blue, early blue belt, but I still have elements of that, that I think I learned from, from watching him and trying to emulate him. Nice. Um, yeah, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. So, like, obviously, we're we're lucky in New York that there's classes all day. You know, guys are at the gym from you know six a.m. to who knows what time at night. But a lot of the other gyms, they don't they don't have that. Like when I travel and find try and find classes, there's still a ton of places that the the instructors still have a nine to five. There's one class at night and yeah. then maybe a class on the weekend, and people are are coming in and it, it's a there's not as much as just like hanging around and extra time to rep. So it's really hard to grab a guy and be like, Hey, do you want to rep stuff for a little bit? Cause generally they're like, not really. I want to take the class. I want to roll and I want to get out of here. Yeah. 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 Trouble finding guys to agree to do that at first. I mean, obviously now you have a name people, there's value to it, but starting out when you're just a blue belt and going like, who wants to come in an hour early and rep moves, is that tough? Uh, so because, uh, like right shortly after I got my blue belt, I started working at the gym, like, uh, Bo had left to go to the military. So I uh, remember Mike Galway. He had, yeah, uh, yeah, Big Mike, he had, he's awesome. He had, like, I think he got a different job. So then there was a desk job open. So they offered me a job. I guess I guess it was like sort of natural just because I was there all the time. I was really dedicated, new blue belt. And they offered me a job. And that really afforded me to be there all the time. Now I would, I would you know, whatever my hours were supposed to be, I would come in before. I would, you know, drill with someone like Joe Lacrosse or one of the other, you know, young blue or white belts that you know was around my age because I was you know 20 21 at the time didn't have a ton of responsibilities at that point uh, I was living at home and found people like me I was with I guess similar mindset in the sense that they wanted to get better I mean at that point I didn't really have a goal of you know like I, I mean my life the way my life is now and looking back then like I didn't envision the way like this, this happening to me the, the way it did but you know i just wanted to get good at jiu-jitsu i wasn't thinking man i want to get good enough so i can you know open a school and teach a lot of privates and win competitions like although i was competing it wasn't it wasn't the same that it wasn't as developed it was like one big event it was like the ibjjf world championships every year and that was like the main thing at the time but i just wanted to you know get as good as i could and i found people who kind of had the same mentality and on top of that i had access to the gym you know it wasn't like you know, I couldn't, you know, even if I found time to train, it wasn't like I couldn't get in. Like I was there all day. I was working there. I had a key. So, you know, I kind of, it was like a few factors, I think, you know, the willingness to do it, you know, having people who were also willing, also just having access to the academy at my disposal to, to train pretty much whenever I wanted. That's cool. So now when you're, you're at a place now that you're competing in pretty, pretty frequently, how are you splitting up now your time for drilling versus rolling so it's interesting now like so if i could go back like and talk to myself you know seven eight nine years ago i think i would tell myself to do it differently in the sense that i think well i think at the time i didn't have access to like 
other training methodologies or anything like that or or the knowledge that I do now. So I, I not that I don't think I, I did it incorrectly, but I just I think I did what I thought would get me as good as possible. But I think a big thing that I didn't do coming up was using uh, positional training. So I used to do a lot of like reps of a move. So hit a leg drag, you know, hit a leg drag 50 times on each side. I think at a certain point, there's a level of diminishing returns doing that. Like if you've never done a move before, like you definitely have to hit that like baseline level of reps to like get the move down correctly. When you do it well, like, you know, when you perform it smoothly where everything's going to the right place. But after that, I think, you know, doing a thousand reps beyond that baseline, like I don't think it's going to fully um, like improve you as much as you could doing other things. Like, for example, like I think doing positional training is probably the best way to improve in a, in a specific position quickly, but I think it has to be done when you already have a sense idea of what you should be doing somewhere so like if you just took a brand new person or someone who's inexperienced and asked them to do positional training from from like a half guard and they don't really have a clear sense of what to do like i think it's a waste of time but if you have an idea of what should be done and you do positional training you can then go back and analyze okay i did this this didn't work like where did this go wrong how can i improve this how can i problem solve and get better and and improve myself so i think it has to be a combination of the drilling, the just like straight live rolling and the positional training. I think that's really what's going to, you know, like turn someone into a high level breath work. I like Obviously that. Obviously with good direction. Yeah, I, I think you're right too. Cause even, you know, there's, there's times when you're, if you're just rolling, 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 there's a lot of times that I find that I won't be in those positions. And then when all of a sure. sudden you go with somebody and you're in them. And I always loved how like those crazy Tuesday night classes or like the Friday morning classes, when Matt would be like, all right, last roll. And then everybody would last and be like, all right, find another partner. This is the last one. And be like, shit, like I blew all my energy. And they'd be like, all right, <laughs> yeah. one more. But then he'd be like, now you're going to start on your back or now the guy's going to mount you. Yeah, now yeah, you're going to yeah. go to turtle. You guys are starting your back. You yeah. have like no energy. And now you have to do it. You really have to rely on the technique. Like as much as I hated that, I felt like that that was a huge growing tool to see like, like yeah. where's my technique really at? And I also love when, when Corfage used to come down and teach at Levittown, actually East Meadow, he would do things like, I think it would be like two 10 minute rounds. And he'd be like, all right, one guy is going to do like in the guard and for two minutes and then switch and then side control on each side and then switch and then take his back. And then, and it'd be like two minute rounds from each position for each guy. And you were freaking exhausted by the end, but it was like really opening your eyes to yeah, yeah, where yeah, you definitely. can work in and out of. I think, I think, yeah, that's a good point. I think it's, um, I think it's definitely important to like, so you, to, I don't want to say analyze your roles, but you, you have a role, you try something and you know, you go for it. And if it works, you want to be able to understand why it worked. And if it doesn't work, you want to be able to understand where it went wrong and come up with a solution to, to solve that problem. Then you go back and train again and you try that solution. And then, you know, does it work? Does it not work? And you kind of repeat the process over and over again. You know, I really think that's, I mean, like if you look at any developments in the game or, or, or any developments in jiu-jitsu, like someone, you know, like came up with a lot of this stuff and like, how did they come up with it? They like, you know, went in there and like, they tried something out. They're like, yeah, oh, this could kind of work. And they kind of tweaked it and worked on it. It's like, you know, it's like building uh, like, a, I don't want to say building a house, but you're kind of building something. You have to like analyze the steps as, as you go along. And, no, we'll, uh, we'll go with the house reference for this podcast. 
But uh, yeah, I feel like yeah, that's a big part of which maybe some people don't do is they, you know, maybe they think of not that they think of jujitsu like a workout because it's, it's obviously way more than that. But you know, like trying to like you have a role like man that didn't go so well. I got my bar passed. A guy like mounted me, headed off, choked me. Like what? Wh- like what happened that resulted in that happening? Like you just didn't like lay there and get mounted. Like you tried to play half guard and what happened? Oh, he got the underhook on me and then. Like I tried, you know, he ended up passing right to mount and I tried to bridge and he trapped my arm, like understanding specifically what happened, why it happened and what can you do to prevent it from happening? You know, the same way you would approach like any problem. You know, I think, I think when you start thinking of jujitsu like that, I think it becomes a lot, I don't want to say easier. I think it's extremely hard, but it becomes easier to know which direction to move in. I like the way you teach too, because, you know, I think a lot of the guys out there do as far as like at match gym, but the fact that we would work off of specific positions for like, like a month or a couple of weeks in a row, you'd say like, Hey, we're going to work off of this. We're going to work off of that. Because I remember thinking like, what I want to do is I want to find out like, like I tried this, I got to do a a private with Jason to figure out why this didn't work. But then like when you come back and being at a higher level of practicing that move in so many different ways, I don't think the details register as much unless you have somebody to bounce it off of so you'll be like well where was your arm was it underhook was it up where was your leg which side were you on where was he did he do this or did and then like you start to think about like shit i have no i don't remember i just remember and then you start to really learn like okay now yeah i gotta put this here and that was there and that's where the problem was but i remember like initially like i'm gonna take a private i'm gonna pay 100 bucks and i'll get the answer to never be in that position again and then yeah. you realize that there's like a thousand variations yeah, and like, of course. there is yeah, no yeah. like one thing. And, you know, yeah, I think that, yeah. that stressful at first, it took me a while to accept that, that there's never yeah, like yeah. an answer. It's this I, whole, I think it ultimately really comes down to like, I don't want to say like how much knowledge you have, but like your ability to like, like logically uh, like assess the situation and like really pay attention to all those little things that are going on. Like people will come to me that like, man, like, I want to do private with you. And they're like, I keep getting like my guard passed or whatever. I'm like, okay, like, well, well, like what, what, like what type of guard are you playing? Are you playing seated guard? Are you playing shin shin? Like what's, what's happening? They're like, I, I don't know. I just keep getting my guard passed. And it's like, you know, like, well, we need to start somewhere. Right. Like, and then like, they'll take the first lesson. I'm like, all right, let's try this. Like, we're going to have you play this guard. Like I've watched roll a little bit. Maybe this is good for you. Then they come back to like, oh yeah. So yeah, I tried to do that. And then this happened. Okay. This is good. We can work with this. Like, you know, so your arm is here. The person got an underhook. You got to keep your elbow in right here. Then you start to really see like why things are happening, why they're not working. And then like, I think then it becomes almost like a, like a self-assessment. Like I went for this. It didn't work. I can correct it. You know, obviously you, you need someone there for the most part, like helping you, but think about all like the best people. Like think about Gordon Ryan, like when Gordon Ryan makes a mistake in training, like or maybe he asked John Danaher, but you know, there's not really anyone he can go to like he's the fucking best guy so he's got to like figure it out right and like you know a a lot of times like the best person in the room or the best person in that training environment if they're thinking like that they have to do that themselves they have to come up with solutions to the problems but i think when you have enough i don't even say experience but enough like uh like awareness and like like uh like I guess cognitive, I don't, I don't know what the word is, but like when you, when you've done that enough times and you've like analyzed yourself over and over again, like it becomes a little bit easier to come up with answers instead of like, you know, you go to the, let me go to the, which is not a bad thing to do at all, but you go to the higher belt, Hey man, this keeps happening. And they give you an answer and it's like, okay, good. Like solved. But 
like it's sometimes good to understand why it's happening, understanding why the particular solution is going to is going to help you. Yeah, you know, in the um, touching on that, it's an interesting question because for a guy who's probably taken a lot of privates and a guy who gives a lot of privates, what in your experience or opinion is the the best way to to use that? Like so, like for me, I was I was traveling around the country taking privates. But I wasn't really speaking up for for what I wanted or taking control of it. I was just walking in and going, I need help everywhere. And they'd be like, all right, well, we're going to work triangle escapes. And I'd be like, well, I don't really do triangle, but I didn't want to say anything. So then I started saying, yeah. you know what, like, I'm going to keep working off of what I'm doing. And when I show up, like what I started to do was politely ask, because sometimes it's weird, but I'd be like, hey, do you mind if we roll for like, you know, 20 minutes or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So you can see what I'm doing and just tell me where I'm messing up, because I don't really necessarily know how to tell you like what my game is or where I'm getting stuck. But if you roll with me, you're going to know right away. Yeah. And then they would build off of those things. And for me, that worked better. But I know sometimes like guys will be like, look, if you're not bringing another body that I can't watch you with, like they are like me and you training won't make a difference. I need to watch you train with somebody else. So like for you, what's a perfect scenario for somebody coming in wanting to take a private? So to, to get the most out of it, obviously. So a lot of times, you know, probably like about half the students I teach are like Sarah members. So I have like a, a, an idea of their game to a certain degree. Um, but the people that I don't, you know, that aren't from here, like I teach, you know, a lot of people from other schools, like usually I think it's best for them to come in with a specific thing they want to work on. Like, you know, and maybe I want to learn leg locks in general. I want to improve my, my back game, you know, and from there I can kind of work from the ground up. But like, I think in general doing not that you can't pick anything up, but like doing one off lesson and like never doing it again, like you're going to see like a compounding more benefit from doing more of them. You know what I mean? Like if like one lesson is equal to like $1, like two lessons, each one will be worth like a dollar 10. If that makes sense. Cause like, I think it like, you know, the, the, what's the saying, like the sum of their parts is greater than like the individual, individual, whatever the saying is like, he's like, I think it's, it's like, it's like the same process I was talking about before. Like you come in, okay, we're going to work on this. Like you want to learn back control. You want to learn leg locks or whatever. I guess if I don't know the person's game, I kind of have to rely on them to give me an idea of where they're strong, where they're weak, where they think they need improvement or, or just something they want to, they want to learn in general. But, and then they come back the next week or the next, you know, the next session. Hey, like I tried this, like this part worked really good. I was able to get here, but you know, I couldn't get any further okay, cool. We can work with this. Like, all right, all you're going to do is adjust this grip. And we might, it may be something we went over last time, but like when you learn something the first time, the things that really resonate with you may not be the actual things that are that important. You know, you have like maybe seven, eight, nine details for a move. There's only two or three of them that really matter, you know? So, and then from there you can build. And I think, I think that's the best, that's the best way. And it has to be done in like conjunction with training. I think, you know, I, I think one of the, you know, not the, not the worst things, but if, if you pay for a private lesson, you don't train all week, then you take the private the next week. It's almost like, all right, how'd that work? Like, oh, I didn't train. Like, and then you almost like spend the time just reviewing what you did because they didn't even get a chance to try it. You know, I think it's like a privates are excellent supplement for training. And, and for me, when I like in, in my, I guess, career, like I've mostly taken privates with John Danaher. Like he's someone I used to take, you know, private with him every Friday for, you know, a couple of years. And, and there would, and that was at a time when I was training there, you know, almost every day. So he would watch me and he would say, you know, 
and he, he's not training himself. So he would say, okay, I think we need to work on this today. Or I would come up with a specific issue that I knew I was having because I'm usually constantly trying to analyze what's going on, what's working, what's not working. And there's just some problems like, man, I, I, this keeps happening to me. And like, I don't have a good answer for it. And that's when like, yeah, someone like him and you know, he can give you an answer for that. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught Tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833 632 0585 for your free online drum lesson. It's, it's pretty incredible, man. I, I agree with you too. And it's, I, I deal with a lot of the same thing in my world, or I guess any business probably does where people are like, well, how do I get better faster? It's like, you know, we can do some sort of coaching. I can give you one-on-one -on -one. and they're like, all right, I want to do an hour. It's like, all right, so you want to learn everything I've learned in the last 15 years of doing real estate in one hour. Like it's, there's going to be things that pop up. We're going to need to adjust on what you're doing. Well, no, you're, you know, and then they start to think, well, of course, you just want to sell me. It's like, no, this is really like how yeah. coaching is. It's interactive. It's a process. It's not a give me an hour and now I know everything. Like, and it's it's funny because there's not anything else anybody would do. Like, hey, I'm going to go to college. All right, well, just go take one class and get your diploma. Oh, I'm going to go open a restaurant. Cool. Just go get on the call with somebody who owns a restaurant for an hour and then just open a business. But like for some reason, things like that, people do it weird. And yeah. I agree with like the constant needing to do stuff is, you know, because because I've been guilty of both. But even just going and training once or twice and remembering to work on what you did in that private. So you have something to go back with because it's like you said, otherwise it's like, what's the point? What are you doing? So yeah, and yeah. I think that's amazing. Now you so you've done privates with with um, John Danaher, who, you know, is obviously for people who don't know, known is one of like the most brilliant guys in jiu-jitsu like literally a genius and i know he's come down and he's done privates and um he's worked with george st pierre and all these guys but he's known as somebody who's really good with details and knowing how to articulate and break things down on a very specific level i've noticed your teaching has become very detailed as well did you learn to teach through him like how did you learn how to because so, there's guys that can do really well and roll really well and train really well, but they don't really know how to teach somebody how to do that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think part of that is, I think there's like, there's definitely examples of people who are very good and they, they're excellent grapplers, but are not great teachers. Uh, and I think that comes from not understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it. Like there's, I think there's some people who are innately know what to do and like, you just have like, I don't want to say natural ability that they, it's a, like a learned skill they have where they've done something so many times where they get to that particular position or you know, just in general, they subconsciously know what to do, but you, you want that. Like if you're in a situation, you want to subconsciously be able to go through your sequences, but you also want to understand it on a conscious level so you can teach it to people. So I think it's, it's a combination of both. Like, uh, yeah, there's just, just some people who are very, very good, but you ask them, what they just did, 
And then, you know, like, oh, I did a dark stroke or whatever, or a guillotine. And like, but like, look, you're putting your hand here. They may not be aware of everything they're doing. So it's actually interesting. Sometimes when I, like, there's, there's definitely things I've taught many, many times that I feel like I don't have to, like, I just know the cues. I know what to tell the people, but there's some things I don't teach as much. And when I uh, go to teach them, like if I'm going to teach that particular move, I do it first. And I say, okay, what exactly am I doing here? Because in my head, I know what to do or my subconscious, I know what to do, but I may not have all the verbal cues to instruct someone else to do it, you know? So just in general, in, in terms of teaching, I think that's important because there's something, there's some things that the instructor may perform very well, but they may not be able, they may not know what they're doing really in this, not know what they're doing. They know they perform it well, but they may not be aware of what's going on. And in, in terms of learning from John, I think he's someone that's, that's very much aware of why every movement is being done in, in teaching a move. Right. I think that's, that's one of the, I mean, to me, that's one of the most important elements is knowing why you're doing something and that's going to allow you to convey that knowledge to others. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons he's such a good teacher. And, and part of it is the fact that he himself is, excuse me, uh, is, is not a competitor. I think he, you know, while, you know, even, even myself, I teach a class, but I also train. So I'm not sitting there watching the whole class, you know, and not to say I never watch people train and try to help people, but I'm also training for myself too. So for me to sit there and, you know, watch people's movements and like, understand, like, like, a, for example, if I watch a role, I try to, you know, if I watch someone pass the guard, I try to understand why did that guard pass work? What was done correctly to make that happen? And what was done incorrectly on the, the, you know, the, the person who got their guard passed. Like, so I think that's a very good way to understand why things work and why they don't. Um, also just, uh, I feel like I've been teaching for a long time. I mean, I, I started teaching classes. I was teaching beginner classes, maybe when I got my purple belt, like in 2012. So I've been teaching almost 10 years now, you know, eight, eight, nine years. So I just feel, you know, I think that's, I think there's a certain comfortability with doing it being able to, you know, just even like you do give like large seminars, like some people are nervous talking in front of a lot of people. And I think, you know, the more you do it, just the more comfortable you come, you become in that, in that type of situation. It's a great answer. I like it. Um, so now as far as competing, when you first started competing, for, and first off, if people want to look it up, I think there's videos online of when you got your black belt. It was definitely on Matt's, uh, Matt Sarah BJJ Instagram. But I think that, that was uh, when everybody was lined up and you finally got your black belt. I don't think there was more of a relief from other black belts. <laughs> it was like, oh my God, finally this guy got his black belt. But it was really cool. You had a big turnout. It was a great video. People were generally happy for you. You, you deserve that. You earned that. That was really cool stuff. But I know you were doing a lot of competitions before. And I've, I've heard you talk about this in and out of the gym that there was a bit of a mental switch that for some reason you weren't pulling the trigger in competition the way that you were in the gym. And now obviously something switched that you are. So I have almost two questions is one, what made you decide to start competing? And what, what do you think changed over the course of that? Was it something mental or something physical that you feel like? You uh, so in terms of starting competing, I think just, I think I did my first competition as a white belt. I only been training two months. I just, it just was something I thought was cool. I wanted to do. It seemed like the natural progression. Like I'm doing this, this, martial art and there's competitions available like that's something i want to do you know like I, I do it every day like why am i doing this every day if i'm not gonna try to compete and and over the years it kind of you know became more and more serious and speaking of uh you know what you said about like you know 
I guess, performance issues, performance anxieties. It's something I, I feel like I still struggle with to a certain degree. It's definitely improved, but um, I don't know. I think it's a very interesting subject. You know, I, I think you see it in all sports. You know, we're got some guys are just very, very good in the, the practice room or then when things, you know, kind of materialize on the big stage, you know, you know, they can't, they can't, uh, you know, capitalize on that moment. Um, I think, I think one thing for sure is like competing more definitely helps that, you know, there, there, there was a period probably like two or three years ago where I was competing, you know, like three times a month. Like I probably did, you know, I think like 2017, I close to like a hundred matches or something like that. And, uh, and like that definitely, you know, 100%, you know, kind of makes those nerves just dissipate, you know, Versus like you don't compete for six months, like you go out there on a big competition, it's definitely a, a little bit, you know, more nerve wracking. But, um, but you know, you compete super often, it kind of just, you know, just becomes the norm for you. And I think that's it. That's definitely a big part of it. Anyone that experiences that, um, competing more is only going to help. And I'm not saying it's gonna like get rid of it entirely. I mean, it's definitely, you know, definitely a real issue for certain people. But competing more is definitely going to you know, make that start to go away. I'm not saying it's going to fully help it, but it's going to move you in the right direction. I think also like knowing, and this is more of a personal thing, you know, for each individual, but knowing where like your optimal state of like, I don't know what the word is, like, I guess optimal uh, level of intensity is in the sense of like, uh, or optimal mental state, like knowing where you perform your best, right? It's like, so some people get really, amped up they hit their chest and you know it's more common in something like mma but you know some people that's good for them in jujitsu like and that works for them like for me like i used to try to not that i would go crazy but i used to try to like amp myself up but personally i don't feel like that's me that's not my personality like to me i feel like in in grappling uh my strength comes from or my strength in competing comes from feeling comfortable knowing that no matter where the match goes like, I know what to do in those situations. Like, I know, okay, if we end up here, 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 whatever, like, I I know exactly what I should be doing. And this is just, like, me problem solving on, a, like, a physical level and something I do every day. And I'm going to approach it with the same intensity I approach it on a daily basis. You know, I'm going to train. Like, I don't need to amp myself up. I go out there, I warm up, I train. And that's that's personally for me how I view it. And I think when I'm at that level, I compete the best. And I think for everyone, they're going to have to find that for themselves. Agree. Yeah. And again, I, I think that it's not only athletes, but business, everything, you know, people have, I think the nerves of people saying, you know, I'm nervous. So then they're not going to do something versus facing those. There's, there's something to be said for the feeling of getting over that and just having it a little less each time and a little less each time and working through that. And, you know, Matt, I think one of the last times I competed, I, you know, I, the tournament before that I won and the tournament after that I got tapped in like two seconds or something. And I hit Matt up and I was like, dude, I'm a fucking failure. You know? And he was like, bad day at a tournament is better than a good day on the mats. Like, and it was, it is a good learning. Sure, lesson, dude, you know? That's a great thing, man. Like when we had, uh, we had Damien Mai out here and I remember he did like a Q and a after he did the seminar and one of the questions that was coming up the most was exactly that. There was a bunch of like younger fighters and newer white belts that were getting into competition. They were like, man, we get so nervous before we compete. Like, and then we just don't really perform well. Like, how do you fix that? What do you do about that? And Damian Maya, and this is not that long ago. 
he was like, man, you tell me when you got that figured out, because I'm still dealing with that, you know, yeah, so yeah. I don't think it's anything that ever goes away, but you just learn to work with it and work around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. It's how you excel, man. So at what point did you, did something switch on you that you said, I'm not just competing now to see where I'm at. I can actually make a career out of this and do this as a professional thing. And I'm going to focus big time on this. So uh, I probably started, so I, when I was a blue belt, I started working the desk and then I had stopped because I was like going back to school full time. And I started working, like like officially working for Matt again, probably like six years ago now. And uh, I was when I was a brown belt. And, you know, like, you know, obviously, you know, you know, I work for the school, I have a salary. And I was doing like a few privates. But when I started training at Henzo's, I think when that, like, I mean, not just for me, but like that whole crew there, that's kind of when that no-gi scene, the submission grappling scene really blew up. Um, that's when it started to become like pretty viable for me. So, so like in terms of competition money, like even like Gordon Ryan, he, you know, he makes good money for competition, but like when you compare it to like MMA, it's not even close. Like really the, the money in grappling is coming from instruction, whether it's an instructional DVD or, or owning a school or, or private lessons. And that kind of around, around that time, probably like three ish, four years ago, like I started, teaching a lot of private lessons and you know i was teaching a lot of the classes at sarah's like naturally you know people want to do private lessons and so i started to develop uh, a client base from doing that and then from competing and doing pretty well um you know i developed more and more clients from the general like long island area um so that's kind of when i was like wow like i can make pretty good money doing this and uh like since then like it's only gotten better and um you know I, it's, it's, it's interesting is I think I'm in a very unique situation where um, you talk to most grapplers, like they're fucking broke as shit. Like no one has any money, which is like, I mean, it's like that in MMA too. Like a lot of like, like up and coming sports like this, like unless you're at the top, top, top. Um, but I think I'm in a unique situation where um, I'm, I think I'm a good instructor too, because I've been competing, uh, I've been teaching for a while. I'm a good competitor. I think I'm, I have an overall good understanding of, of jujitsu and I'm in a situation working for Matt where like Matt has a big successful school and there's a lot of people interested in, in privates. You know, we're, we're not like, you know, I'm not teaching at some MMA gym where everyone's 20 years old and has no money, you know, like, you no, know, he's a, you know, obviously there's some people who, who are like up and coming like that, but there's a lot of people in there that are middle-aged and are doing this as a hobby or are serious about it, want to get better at it, willing to pay for privates, but they have that disposable income to do it. So I think that's, that's definitely a key. If you're looking to make money through private lessons, you have to be in that right demographic where there's people around you that are able to, you know, spend a hundred plus dollars a week on a private lesson. Right. Sure. Yeah. I think that's great. And now for, so going from Matt Sarah's to going to Hanzo Gracie's, you know, for, for people who don't know it, they're, they're pretty close within an hour, depending on where you are, you hop on a train, you go right to Midtown and there's a lot of cross training. So I know like the few times I've gone down to Henzo's and taking classes with Danaher or taking a seminar, there's always like on any given class that I've been at, like a top 10 UFC guys are there, the best jiu-jitsu guys in the world are there and, and everybody's just training together. And um, is I, I was very intimidated to go there. So initially starting out, what was, what was your experience going over there? And I know you slowly started spending more and more time, but what's it been like just being engulfed and surrounded by, you know, Danaher and Henzo and Gary Tonin and, you know, Gordon Ryan and Nikki Ryan and all these like 
top level studs that you're in there training with on a weekly basis. I'm sure that's got to be great mentally and physically to maybe not every day, but you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so when I, the first time I went to Hensel's was actually with Eric Sherman. Oh, like cool. this is, so, so Eric Sherman, you know, was a, you know, Sarah, he was a brown belt at the time, but he was like kind of the, the first guy I remember that was like actively competing in jujitsu and, and doing well, like from our school. Like, I don't know, he had placed at the world one year. And uh, so he, he had, you know, he was from Long Island initially and he moved into, into the city. So he was training at Henzo's and this is, you know, like 2012, this is before Henzo's was what it is today in the sense of submission grappling. Like they didn't have like you know, this big submission grappling team, this big, like, you know, high level Nogi team that like they do now, it was more known for MMA. Like that's what GSP would, would be there. Frankie Edgar would be there. Chris Wyman was there. So Eric got me to come down a few times and I had heard about John Danaher. He had taught a seminar at Sarah's, but that's when I first became like really aware of like how good of an instructor he was. I remember him teaching like, and I didn't go a lot. I maybe went like half a dozen times over, you know, over like a couple of years uh, from like 2012 to 2014. And I just like still remember the lessons that he taught. Like he showed like a triangle defense that I still use that works really well. I was like, man, this guy like really knows what the fuck he's talking about. Like it was like so simply prevented, so simply presented, but also so effective. It was just like, I was like, wow, this guy's really good. And then like, as the years went on, I was, I didn't really go there. Like occasionally I, I would drop in because I knew Danner was great. But, uh, and then like these guys like started emerging, like Eddie Cummings, Gary Tonin, like Gordon Ryan. And they were like doing these leg locks and it was coming from him. Uh, and like, I was like, man, like, this is crazy. And I started studying it and trying to learn it. And I was like, they're so close. Like, I just have to, like, I, I might as well go in here and train. Right. Like it's, it makes no sense not to do it. And, uh, so I started training there and that was kind of like where they were coming up, but like, you know, Gordon hadn't won ADCC yet. So it was like, it was kind of, I wasn't there at the very beginning, like before, like anyone knew them, but it was kind of cool to like watch that progression of like these guys, like Nikki, like when I first went there, Nikki was like 15 years old. He's like a little <laughs> kid. Like now he's like fucking 20 and jacked. And it's just cool just to see uh, like the progression of everybody, myself included Nick Ronan, like Nick Ronan was a purple belt wearing like fucking basketball shorts to go train and like now he's a fucking killer and I mean, he was a killer then too but it's it just cool to, to see overall you know like obviously like being around those guys is awesome and but it was just cool to watch like how everybody has grown into like you know you know into like something way bigger than they used to be so it's, it's definitely awesome yeah that's cool i actually remember i think i was telling somebody this story but uh, I know Jay Gershon was always telling me, he's like, man, I came from Hanzo's. He's like, he's got this guy, Gordo. It was like before anybody knew him as like Gordon Ryan. He's like, he's really good. He's like, and then he's got this little brother that's going to be like just as good when he grows up. And then uh, I remember training with you and you were like, hey, go roll with uh, that dude, Nick. And I was like, all right. And you were like, be careful. And I was like, it's like a one stripe white belt. You were like, I'm not kidding. Be careful. And then I was like, holy shit. Like all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> I'm fucking back and stuff. I'm like, I thought you were messing with me, but yeah, I mean, he's just, he's just a natural. So it's pretty cool. Now I, I've heard you say also uh, on a couple of different podcasts and stuff that you weren't initially sold on the leg lock game, which probably sounds crazy to people who roll or, or train or compete against you now, because you're so good with those, but what changed your mind to decide that you were, you were part of the leg lock stuff and you were sold on them. So I guess I would say, um, I mean, kind of like anyone else, I think like most people, when something new comes along, they're like somewhat skeptical of it. And so, you know, I was definitely, 
like pro- prior to doing that, I was like very into watching the Mendez brothers, like, you know, Art of Jiu-Jitsu, those guys, like uh, Adolfo Vieira, like a lot of the big names in the sport at the time, like a lot of the Brazilians. And, and you know, heel hooks, not that nobody did them, but they were generally like, I don't want to say frowned upon because like at Sarah's, I mean, people kind of always did them and nobody, it wasn't like, like it is now, but there was like never like an issue with it. But it just didn't like, you know, you watch the best guys in the sport, you don't really see them using it. And, and then like these, these guys come up and they, at, at the point, when I was skeptical, they hadn't yet competed at the highest level. So you're like, ah, oh, this is good. But like, is this going to really work? Like, is this going to work against the very best people? And so I think naturally I was skeptical and, and as they kind of got better, I kind of was like, wow, like this is, I think this is something you have to pay attention to. And so that kind of, and then I started doing them and, and like, it was like immediate success. Like, I like would roll with people and like, I would have trouble tapping them. And then I started doing like that. I would just tap them multiple times in a round. And it's definitely, it's definitely something. And now it's, it's everything kind of caught up a little bit. Not, I don't want to say entirely, but people are definitely much better. But back then it was like, you know, people had no idea how to defend it. It was just like such an exploitable weakness among people, you know, whether it's in the gym or competition, it, it was like, you know, like, for example, like the saddle position, like these days, like there's a lot of like intricate defenses and like good ways to get out of it. But like you put someone in it like three years ago, four years ago, it was like game over, like, like a hundred percent of the time, you know, it was just, it was just cool. Um, it was different. And, and like, I'm, I'm always someone that like likes trying new things. Like I like adding new things to my game. And so it was fun to do and it's super effective and, I think it's a, it's here to stay. Obviously, it's a staple in the game, and it, you're going to compete at a decently high level. And like, you don't know what's going on there. Like, you should. It's, it's going to be tough. What's your take on guys starting out? Because I know there's been a lot of talk, and I've heard Matt talk about it a lot. Where you know, guys are watching you and Gary Tonin, and you know, all the EBI stuff, and they're they're coming in as white belts and blue belts, and all they want to do is leg locks, leg locks, leg locks. And I know, like Matt specifically, always references you, and he's like, "Man, people watch Jason Rao." And they go, I'm just going to do leg locks. But they don't realize that Jason's passed 100,000 guards. He's done 100,000 mountain escapes. Like, his his blade is sharp everywhere. It's not just that. And these guys aren't getting there. And, and some of the other gyms that I've gone to that are, like, specialty gyms, if I get past their thing, I realize that a lot of the other fundamentals are, are, are really not there. And even with you, I remember there was a couple of days where we would go to roll, and I was like, I'm not letting Jason just freaking dominate me today and just take my feet. Like, I'm going to put up a fight and turn it up a notch. And I did, and then you did. And I went to go grab my feet and then like you took my arm, you took my neck, you took my other arm. And I was like, oh, that's right. He's good everywhere. It's not just yeah. the feet. So um, for guys starting out, like where, what do you see as, as being important? Because are you finding that new guys are focusing too much on the legs? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think it definitely stems from, you know, seeing guys do it. And I, I definitely don't think new guys should, you know, because if you learn that early, it's, it's only going to benefit you. But at the same time, like you said, you have to, like learn other skills i can't tell you how many guys i've rolled with who like are like so leg heavy but like they can't get it and then like they just think everywhere else you know you definitely (laughs) do not want that game but at the same time you don't want to be the guy who doesn't know what's going on i mean it's an interesting question i kind of i like have like internal debates with myself about this like i'm not really sure where to take it because like for example like i feel like there's there's things you learn in the beginner class that you need to learn but well, there's certain things that, that work 
like all the way up to black belt at a high level. But there's certain things you learn that are kind of like the standard like sweeps and like maybe they don't work so well at, at a higher level. But like sometimes I'm like, why don't we just fast track everyone? Just show them the stuff that's going to work when they get to purple, brown, and black belt. But then you get into stuff like like kid only wants to do leg locks and can't do anything else. So I think I think as an instructor or a coach, you kind of have to like steer people in the right direction. And also I think doing something like positional rounds is going to correct that. Like, so if you have, you know, if you just do free rolling and like, you know, white belt or blue belt, like a just loves to do leg locks and like, he's only going to go for leg locks. But if you make him do a mountain escape round, you make him do a turtle round where he has to take the back, a guard passing round where he can't go for leg locks. I think you're like forcing the student to develop other skills. Um, so I think that's, I think that's a good solution for it. Cause I think like, if someone really likes something, they're going to naturally gravitate toward it, towards it. Like, and you don't want to be like the person saying like, you shouldn't be doing leg locks. You know, you want to, you, know, you want to encourage them to definitely work on stuff that they, that they like doing and like make it enjoyable while also getting better. But I think, I think doing positional rounds with specific guidelines is the best way to, to, to d deter that, you know, because you're forcing the person to work other skills in conjunction with, you know, developing that. I think it's a great answer. And I agree. It's probably something you go back and forth with and it's a double-edged sword, but training on um, leg locks, do you feel that it's important to make sure you find the right training partners? Because obviously if somebody, if it's somebody you don't trust or somebody that maybe doesn't have a ton of control, there's a lot of, you know, alleged Injury. I, I personally haven't have have I don't see it happen that often, but it's a concern. I don't know how realistic a concern it is, but definitely, I mean, if somebody gets carried away and holds something a little bit too long or doesn't really know whether or not they're turning the right way, it could be a, a very serious injury. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, you know, I think I think that's something you know, especially when you have a lower belt, um, you know, where the potential for injury is is definitely higher. You know, or you have someone who's not experienced in the position. Like, I mean, I think one of the reasons kind of going back to what you said, why like sometimes a lower belt may gravitate towards that is because, you know, if, if I'm a white belt or a blue belt and I go against a black belt and, you know, they're way better than me everywhere else, but maybe like I know a little bit more about leg locks and then that's, that's a way I could beat them. So that's like kind of like a reinforcing thing. Like, oh, these are so good. Like, you know, but at the same time, you know, um, I think just, just in general with all submissions like teaching people to to be controlled and you know like like it goes on both people like it's my responsibility to give you time to tap but it's also your responsibility to tap so i you know tap when i'm applying the submission so i think that's more of like a i don't want to say a cultural thing but like you know like and i think sarah's is a you know in, in that sense has a very good culture where people like very little injuries happen i rarely see anyone get hurt with, with submissions and, and if it is, if someone does get hurt, it's someone who is like, not that a knock on them, but someone who's like not there and who is not, who doesn't train often, who is not like in tune with like kind of the culture of the gym. Like, you know, like a guy comes back after three years off, like doesn't know what's going on and gets heel hooked and gets hurt. Like, not that I've seen that specifically, but that's the type of thing I can see happening. And if I did see something like that, like I would tell like, Hey, don't hurt this person. Like he's not going to know how to defend. He hasn't been here. Like, be careful, but it's like the people who are kind of doing it every day and are around it every day. Like those are the people that don't get hurt usually because they're like aware of the, of, of what's going on. Like they're, they're there for the classes. They're learning the defense, they're learning the offense and they're, they're, 
you know, they're not going to be surprised. Like, oh shit, we're doing heel hooks and like you get hurt or like, you know, you go nuts and, and you turn out the wrong way or something like that. I think it's also responsibility of the higher belts, like in any gym, like when you see someone like that, whether it's the person like doing something that's going to hurt themselves or doing something to hurt someone else, your responsibility to say something. You know, if I see someone, you know, jump close guard from standing, like I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll tell them like, Hey, you can't do that here. You're going to hurt someone. Like you're going to hit their knees and blow their knees out. Or if I see, someone turning the wrong way out of a heel or just like violently, you know, spinning and like, Hey, like, Hey man, like you're going to get hurt doing this. You should stop doing that. And, and I think, I think that's the best way to prevent things like this. You know, I don't think there's a concrete like rule per se, but like, I think it comes from the culture of the gym you're training at. That's awesome. I agree. I think that that it makes a big difference in uh you know, again, the, the guys that, like you said, they, they come in out of nowhere, they haven't trained and they do crazy things. I think one of the benefits of the higher belts is when you train long enough, you know how to relax in bad positions. And it's almost like the drunk driver in the car accident. Where yeah, like, if yeah. I'm rolling with you, I, I know it's coming, but like, I'm not worried you're going to hurt me. So I know like when I feel the pressure, I'll be able to tap and I don't have to tighten up like, oh my God, like there's no ego for like, I got to, I got to beat him. Like it's not going to happen. So it's just kind of like, all right, let me learn from the process and you can relax a little bit and learn to kind of just enjoy it and be in the moment. And yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure. sure that comes with experience. So I mean, what are your thoughts now on, like I touched earlier on the legend of Jay Rao that's kind of come around for people dropping the name Jason Rao on podcasts from Eddie Bravo to Gordon Ryan and everybody talking, you know, Matt Serra on UFC Unfiltered was saying that you're a star student. How does it feel now coming from the guy who was working the desk and just training solo on a medicine ball to now being named as one of the next big things in jiu-jitsu from the biggest names in jiu-jitsu? It's definitely cool. I mean, um, you know, for me, I always kind of think, you know, anytime I'm having like a, a day where I'm really tired or beat up, I'm like, man, I don't want to train. Like I always like think of the alternatives. Like instead of doing this, like I could be doing some fucking thing I hate, you know, not to say I, I would definitely be doing something I hate that's not jujitsu, but like, I'm very, very grateful to be able to, you know, live my life and support myself and, you know, make a living doing something I really, really love. Uh, it's, it's very cool for me. Like I, uh, like I was never a great student in school. I think I'm, I think I'm smart, but I never like was really able to apply myself in school. I kind of always, you know, was like a subpar student. Like I went to college. I never did. I didn't do that great. I never graduated. And I kind of was like, this is what I want to do. And you know, when I was like in my early twenties, I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to make this work. And my parents were like, listen, like you got to go back to school. You got to do something. And like, not like that, like, I'm going to prove you wrong, but like, like, I'm very happy it worked out for me. And, and not to say like, this is it, like, I'm content, like, I still want to get better. I want to compete at a higher level. I want to, you know, win ADCC one day. I want to open my own school one day. And, you know, but like, I'm, I'm very happy that I'm on the track that I'm on. And like, I think about this every day, I feel very, very grateful to be able to do what I do and you know, support myself and, you know, live my best life through doing this. Well, I think there's probably a big reason why you're successful at it. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said about it, being grateful and being appreciative of the situation. And, you know, you combine that with somebody that's willing to commit themselves and apply themselves to doing it every day and being the best and being coachable. You know, I think that that is really just a recipe for success. So I, I really do think like all the, the basic, the foundations, the repping, the mindset, all this stuff you're doing, it's, it's why it's not an accident that you became so good and so successful as what you did, because 
you know, that's, that's the formula and people just don't want to put the work in or they don't want to put the time in, or they don't want the, to put that mental training in there to be where yeah. they are. And, you know, uh, you're, you're earning it, man. So I'm, I'm glad to see it. And Thank it you. won't take up your whole day, but I definitely have just a couple more things I want to kind of go yeah, over. Yeah, of course. One of them being BJJ for MMA. So, um, you know, you, I, I know that you're, you're not in an MMA. Do you first off have any desire to get into MMA now that you can uh, really be grappling? I thought, I, mean, I, I, thought of, I mean, I, I definitely don't want to, I'm not going to like change careers and do it. I thought at one point, maybe I'd like to have a fight at some point just to like, just to have done it. Like, you know, you know, try to apply jujitsu and MMA or just, just to like, I don't want to say check it off the bucket list, but like, it's definitely like a different level of, I don't want to say it's, it's harder in, in like the sense, but I think it's like a different level of intensity for sure. You know, like the, the consequences are way more dire than, than doing jujitsu, than grappling. Um, so it's something I've thought about doing. Um, I'm not opposed to, I'm not going to say I'm never going to do it, but it's definitely not going to be a career switch. Like I'm 31, like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to fucking win a UFC title at this point. Like ship has sailed. But uh, if I was younger, maybe, um, you know, tr like train would have trained differently if that was what I wanted to do. But, you know, um, it, but it's something I enjoy. Like I, I, I love helping our fighters prepare. Uh, and I think, uh, I think jujitsu is definitely something that's underutilized. And I think it, you know, someone like Aljo is like an example of, of it being used very, very well. But I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of room for it to, to be effective in MMA. Cool. Yeah. So taking some of those foundations in there, I know that you've gone out to a lot of different places. You've been a big part of the training camps for Chris Wyman, for Aljo, for Rage and Ally Akinta, um, and you've gone different places with them. What has it been like being part of their camp and part of their go-to guy for these big UFC stars now? Oh, that's awesome. I think it's really cool. Um, you know, it's nice to think that I have, you know, some small part in, in a lot of their success and like all three of them, and not just them, all the guys like are genuinely awesome guys. They work hard. Like I, I want to see them succeed. And you know, if I can, you know, help that in any way, I think that, I think that's awesome. Um, but you know, it's just, uh, I think it's very cool to be able to, you know, apply, because I think, I think for the most part, if you look at most fighters, like you have, you know, if you're stand up, you have your, you have your, your, your wrestling, your takedowns, you have your like jujitsu or your grappling. I feel like that is usually on the low end of a lot of people, you know, that's probably the, like the bottom tier in terms of importance. But um, I, I, I personally think if used correctly, it could be probably your most effective tool, but it, it's cool to be able to like help people do that and, and use that in, a, in an MMA situation. Like I definitely get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, a lot of satisfaction for, for doing that. Cool. I, I like watching really good jujitsu guys, especially off their back. You know, like I, I rolled with uh, Ryan Ortega a few times. I was really interested to see what he was going to do if he got taken down. But like, I, I just last week watched James Gonzalez. And um, even though the match didn't go the way he wanted to, the, level of activity that he had off of his back that he was constantly going for sweeps getting under going for submissions throwing legs up like he never sat still he was always moving around and i feel like that that's a thing that i mean and obviously you have to have a great gas tank to be able to do that yeah, and it's hard sure. when somebody's punching you and when it's slippery but that dude did not sit still for a freaking second and i thought that was really cool and you know being that i've done a little bit of both nowhere near that level 
But when you, you really start to second guess yourself when you're on top and every time you go to move, the guy's grabbing something or yeah. doing something and it kind of, it freezes you up. And I don't think as there's, there's not a lot of guys that are that active or effective off of their back in no, MMA, exactly. as far as I can see, what, what's your take on, um, on that and just kind of working off your back. And obviously I don't know if you saw James fight, but I thought it was really impressive. Yeah. But, I saw some of the highlights of it. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a perfect example of someone that's super, super active. It's interesting. Cause like, for example, like by no means, um, do I think like I could go in there and, you know, beat these people using like, you know, jujitsu off my back, but I, I'd be like curious to like, do like an experiment, like, you know, obviously where I don't get my face pounded in, but like try <laughs> to use my jujitsu against like a decently high level fighter in like a sparring situation off my back. And I, I'm just curious to see how effective it would be, you know, cause I, I think it's a matter of like, so you take a, you take a guy who, you know, maybe he's an up and coming fighter, like, you know, just getting to the UFC. Like it's, I think it's a question of like time investment, like how much, how much time, is, how much, how much benefit is it to get extremely good off your back in grappling? Like it definitely takes a lot of time, right? Like you're not going to grapple twice a week and get very, very, very good. Like, you know, so like you see most people when they end up on, on, on their back, they try to stand up and like, that's like kind of the tested improvement strategy. Like if you can get up, get the fight back standing and like either take the guy down or, or, you know, work your striking, that's, that's the formula. And you see a lot of guys teaching that. So it's like, uh, I'd be like interested to just like, you know, if I could like transport my jujitsu onto someone else, I'd be, I'd be curious to see how effective it would be, but I'm not necessarily convinced of the, of the trade-off it would take to, to like, you know, develop that level of skill and like, and where you would maybe be like deficient elsewhere. If that makes sense. Like, so yeah, it makes total sense, man. The yeah, focus but, on that could take away from the focus on something else. You're yeah. So, I, I mean, not to say there's people that couldn't like, you know, juggle all of it, but, but just from like a, a like an MMA perspective, you don't really see, not that you don't see guys fight off the back, but the highest level, you don't see it that often. You know, the guy on bottom is usually trying to stand up. Like, you know, not to say it never happens. Who, who didn't someone triangle someone from bottom recently? Maybe I'm, like a big fight. Khabib had that top yeah, triangle. Khabib had the triangle. But I thought maybe someone got a submission off their back, but uh, like generally speaking, the, the plan is to stand up. I would just be curious to see, like someone like a Gary Tolan. That, that's why like him fighting is super exciting to me. Or someone like Gordon Ryan. Like how how effective? Because they're not only like obviously like world champions jiu jitsu, but I think you see a lot of people that that are like you know you know, world-class jiu-jitsu guys going to MMA, but they've come from like uh, maybe like an IBJJF setting where like you can win the world championships without without submitting anybody. And not to say like all the guys, like obviously Damian Maya is, is not someone like that. He has excellent, excellent submissions, but um, you know, they're, they're maybe more positional guy, like positional based. They're like, they may, may play a game that doesn't really translate, but someone like Gordon or Gary, like they are out there to like submit you and break you and they have the capability in like an MMA situation under pressure to like break someone's leg or, or arm or, or shoulder or whatever. And so I'm very interested to see that. Like someone like Gordon, like him working off his back. Like if you put, you know, Adesanya on top of him, like, you know, I'm not saying I think Gordon win, but I would just be curious to see because he's like that level of jujitsu, you know, he's like that good. And so I, I'd just be interested to see how he could, you know, he could integrate that. That's awesome. Didn't I hear that he said you were one of his toughest matches? He might have said that, yeah. That's pretty awesome. 
That's good stuff, man. So uh, one of the last questions before I let you go, being I know you've gone to different countries and different places for seminars and for cornering guys or helping out with camps, between just jujitsu in general, whether it's going with an MMA guy or going for your own seminars or competing, what's one of the coolest experiences that being where you are in jujitsu has bought you? Um, I would say uh, I went to Australia for, I think it was a week and a half, like a year and a half ago. And that was, to me, that was very, very cool. Uh, uh, one of my good friends, his name is Luke Martin. He owns a gym in Sydney, Sydney West Martial Arts um, in Penrith, which is just west of Sydney. And uh, so I actually met him through Henzo's. He'd come to Henzo's a couple of years ago and he was just there like, you know, like many people do is traveling and they you know, came to New York to get training in like, you know, a lot of people do to go to Henzo's. And I met him, I trained with him and I started giving him privates online and he organized the whole trip for me to come out there. I taught a bunch of seminars. I went to Melbourne. I trained with Lachlan Giles actually, which was cool. It's before he like won everything at ADCC. Went to Melbourne, I went to Sydney. Uh, I went to Brisbane. I taught a bunch of seminars, like probably you know, five seminars a week. I hung out with him. And that was definitely like one of the, one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. Uh, it was just, it was just awesome to, you know, be halfway across the world, like, and, you know, be making money in the process and like meeting new people and like building connections. It was just, it was just very, very, very cool to be able to do that. Um, you now that that was definitely a big highlight for me. That's awesome. So uh, finishing up now, what's next for Jason Rao? I know you have some DVDs out. I heard you had some more coming out. I believe it's on jujitsu. So um, talk about what you got going on and some stuff that you want to plug. Uh, yeah. So I, I got two instructionals out right now. Uh, one I made like maybe four years ago. It's a reverse Elihiva instructional. And last year I came out with a, a passing instructional. Um, I did film a, a leg lock defense one, like a leg lock defense instructional, maybe like half a year ago. So that should be coming out pretty soon. I know with COVID and everything, everything's kind of fucked up, but, um, but um, I should be competing next weekend. That's the 14th, the 13th on fight to win in Philly. So I think I'm going to be able to get a match on that. So check that out on flow grappling. Um, but other than that, man, I mean, the ADCC trials are coming up. They, they delayed them. They were supposed to be this or last weekend, actually, but they, they push them back. They don't know where they're going to be yet. They push back ADCC also. So, you know, we'll see. I don't know when that's going to happen, but that's kind of the big thing. You know, whenever that is, like, my plan is to win that, punch the ticket to ADCC, and then compete the following year there. Nice, man. And where can they get your 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 DVDs are all in the jitsu? It's on Digitsu, yeah, yeah. D-I-G-I, D-I-G-I-T-S-U. Yeah, I'll put links for everything in the People are interested in grabbing them and following you and stuff. How can they follow you on social media? Jason Rao, BJJ89 is my Instagram. Yeah. I don't have Facebook or anything, just Instagram. So I, I post, uh, maybe not as much recently, but I usually post a lot of technique videos. You know, feel free to ask me questions, message me. Cool. Cool. And can they book you to do, are you still doing online privates if somebody wants to do yeah, it? Yeah, I'm still doing online privates. You guys can hit me up for that, uh, you know, in, in person, if you're, if you're, if you're near uh, Long Island, you know, I'm available for seminars. So any of that, let me know. Nice. And, you know, I've taken, obviously, a bunch of your Zoom classes when you were doing those when COVID first came in. Um, so, I mean, if you have a grappling dummy or something like that, I highly recommend doing some privates with Jason. They've been very helpful for me. And I know uh, you were doing a great job doing that. I'm sure it wasn't nice, easy. Man. And uh, I know Yvonne was a sport about letting you take over that room for the <laughs> grappling stuff. So any, any final thoughts before we let you go, Jason Rao? That's it, man. Thanks for having me, Nick. I really appreciate it.
Thanks for being on, man. Uh, again, I'm very proud of what you've done. I've watched you come a, a very long way and, and turn into the fine young man you are as an instructor you, and sir. as a competitor. And it's really cool to watch you get all the attention that you uh, you rightfully earned and deserve. So congratulations on everything, man. And I look forward to watching Thank you, you uh, win some titles and do some damage, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you got it. it, brother. Tell everybody I said hello. Yeah,